0: Hello, listeners, and welcome back to new books in science, technology, and society. I'm one of your hosts, Chad Velasik. Today, we'll be talking to Kyla Schuler about her book, The Biopolitics of Feeling, Race, Sex, and Science in the 19th Century, from Duke University Press, put out this year. The Biopolitics of Feeling explores issues of race and gender through ideas of sentimentalism and impressibility, in evolutionary science of the 19th century as well as how these concepts were produced and used in literature, medicine, philanthropy, and the social sciences. Kyla critically engages with the theories of Foucault, Deleuze, and new materialist theorists as well. Uh, Her books should be of interest to folks in STS, as well as for American Studies, Gender and Sexuality Studies, and much, much more. Thank you for joining us, Kyla.
1: Thanks for having me, Chad.
0: So... um, before we get into your book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, you know, how you got interested in this, in this project to begin with?
1: It started, as many first books do, as a dissertation. Uh, I was in the UC San Diego literature department, and I was doing for my qualifying paper. I was looking at the interest in birth control and eugenics of W.E.B. Du Bois, as well as also looking at some of the eugenics hopes and and dreams of some of the post-revolutionary figures in Mexico in the 1920s and seeing a lot of similarity between them. Um, And it just made me wonder about what this longer history that these folks, um, that Du Bois and these post-revolutionary Mexican leaders were drawing on, where they were turning to what we usually think of as you know Anglo-Saxon race sciences, um, but they're turning to them instead for a framework for anti-racist resistance. Um, and so it made me want to know, like, what what is that that prehistory? Especially once I realized that what they had in common was a Lamarckian framework rather than a Mendelian framework toward eugenics. Um, I wanted to know what is you know what is this other tradition of evolutionary science that could be used to oppose racial determinisms. And then that led to seeing just how broadly Lamarckism was taken up in the U.S. 19th century uh, and how much it shifted many ideas of not only what evolutionary politics looked like and reform politics look like, but also even the very nature of race and sex difference as they consolidated in the 19th century.
0: Yeah, I mean, I had no idea how uh... – Popular, Lamarckianism was like during this era, um, you know, because the way that uh, evolutionary science is usually taught, the history of it is, is you know, by the time of the uh, you know of Darwin coming out with on the Origin of Species, that very quickly or within a couple decades, that there was this huge shift. But it took yeah. quite a bit longer than that, um, and you know, it wasn't Lamarckianism wasn't just Influencing scientists, it was it was influencing the the sort of broader culture as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah,
1: I I think that you know that that thesis of how Darwinism was embraced, you know, rapidly and fully (laughs) across the wider culture soon after Origin of Species um, came out in 1859. The thesis, a lot of it comes from Richard Hofstadter's work in the 1940s. And it's been it's been tremendously influential and long lasting, um, but I think from the perspective we're at now, we can actually see how that thesis was in part a moment of his own time. You know, he's writing in the immediate aftermath of the modern Darwinian synthesis. You know, mm-hmm. when natural selection theory was merged with population genetics, um, and suddenly that Darwinian model of evolution by chance, you know, mutation and competition. Um, was really settling in. I think it was easier to project that backwards and say, oh, this has been obviously true <laughs> since the theory debuted. Um, but the work of, of historians of science like um, Bannister and Peter Bowler um, in, the, in the 90s really helped show that, the, that that Darwinian revolution actually didn't really happen until the 30s and early 40s. And the, the 19th century was embracing this Darwinian-Lamarckian mix um, and so, from my perspective, that work was really helpful because, in literary and cultural studies, and ethnic studies, and gender studies, we've tended to embrace that Hofstadter thesis of social Darwinism was the was the rule of the day, and that competition, you know, brutal competition was enshrined as the order of nature and therefore the order of society in the 19th century. But it was much more complicated than that. And so, bringing that history of science work into these other fields. Really opened up for me a totally different story about the about biopolitics
0: uh, yeah and it's and it's also really relevant for today I mean you know in the in the introduction you talk about the 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 politics of black lives matter and then at the end you you talk about um, you know this this resurgence uh, in a way of Lamarckianism via epigenetics um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I was, I was actually wondering um, what what got you thinking about starting off the the book with Black Lives Matter?"
1: Yeah, I was really struck by that visual meme that went around, I guess now three years ago, um, that just that just said, "Black lives are greater than white feelings," uh, because it seemed to me to be precisely contesting. The biopolitics of feeling framework that I diagnose and analyze in the book of of how much biopolitics has actually been about a ranking of a relative capacity of feeling um, and specifically ascribing full feeling in a both sensation sense and emotional sense to whiteness um, and meeting out a lesser capacity for feeling down a racial hierarchy with the opposite pole being blackness, which was often considered dead material and literally not capable of absorbing and reflecting upon sensation and, and and emotion in order to be able to move forward through time in order to be able to be affected by those feelings. Um, it was seen as, you know, stuck in the immediacy of the present trapped in the impulses of uh, immediate sensation. And so when I saw this Black Black Lives Matter meme really identifying um, the way that Black feeling is actually key to the larger framework that constructs Black lives as disposable, um, constructs Black life as not of, of meaning in the larger nation. Um, I thought it was it was a great anecdote to start with, and then just to be to be honest in a kind of strategic sense, <laughs> I wanted to start with something from the present, not you know the perfect nineteenth century anecdote, um, because I do think that the book has a lot to say about contemporary, a uh, critical theory and political frameworks, and so I wanted a reader who's not necessarily inclined to picking up a book about the nineteenth century, you know, to. to to be reassured from the very beginning that this would have something to say to them about the present as well.
0: Absolutely. Um, and, and speaking of which, um, and your engagement with, with uh, critical theories here, um, you, you start off with quite a bit of that. And, and part of this is um, dealing with uh, engage, critically engaging with uh, new materialism. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that.
1: Yeah um you know I started this this project say in 2005 and I was reading all this vitalist race science of the 19th century you know especially the subject of what became the first chapter uh, which is called taxonomies of feeling and that's the American school of of neil and they called themselves the american school of evolution quite explicitly riffing on the earlier American school of, eth- of ethnology, you know, the famous polygenist race scientists, of the 1840s and 50s. And for them, they had this vitalist pers- perspective where all life down to the tiniest protozoa, uh, the lead scientist Edward Drinker Cope wrote, has the capacity of sensibility, um, has, a, has a vitality, um has a vitality that's in every cell. It doesn't just exist in the organism as a whole, but it comes down to the basics of every material every material component of the body. Um, where they differ is in what um which bodies possess the capacity of sentiment or emotional reflect which they understand as an emotional reflection upon a sensation um, that and that sensation, that the discapacity of reflection, is what drives um, species change. What's, what drives evolution, which for them was a very teleological process. You know, this is before the Darwinian synthesis. So Darwin is read as as outlining a path to progress, not just a process of you know random um, variation. So. I've been seeing these, you know, the ways that these race scientists were understanding a, a capacity of vitality uh, and reflection on vitality as driving racial difference, and also for them, sex difference, um, in really starkly racist and hierarchical ways. You know, their their major recommendation for protecting U.S. society was to deny white women the suffrage and to deport everybody of Black descent from the United States um, because they they understood Blackness to be dead material and therefore a contagion to the nation as a whole. Um, And so it was very clear how the capacity of vitality, although they claimed in some ways that it was universal, it actually ended up being their framework for race difference. So I've been reading this for years, um, and then suddenly new materialism happened, which often in a kind of a historical way claims to rediscover the, vita- the vitalistic capacities of matter. And so it was just very troubling to me that um, this wasn't actually a rediscovery as much as a reanimation of an older theory, an older theory that wasn't actually that old um that was you know just preceding the modern Darwinian synthesis in the 30s and 40s and then in some ways is coming back with epigenetics. Um, and so it's not it's not of course that I think that any framework of of vital matter is therefore you know irrevocably tainted. Um, but I do think that we can't engage with theories of vital matter without really carefully tracing their genealogy and being very clear about how vital matter Originated in our modern sense as a framework for race difference, and how when we're invoking it, we're taking it someplace different. Um, but neomaterialism in general hasn't actually been interested in that in that genealogy, um, and in fact, is often it's often quite deracinated, as if turning to vital matter is a is a universal that will help uh, solve political dile- or, or rather, help solve political dilemmas um by virtue of a new kind of logic of universality um, and that is what i really wanted to to intervene in
0: yeah i think it's uh, you know an incredible intervention in terms of historicizing the the um the movement if you will um i was wondering in terms of the american school of evolution um, could you tell us more about uh their um effect or or their, you know, their um, influence over um, biological thought, uh, evolutionary thought in the 19th century, um, as well as the very, uh, I'll say, entertaining um, (laughs) and uh, problematic Cope.
1: Yeah, um, Cope is a really fascinating figure. Um, You know, he's the most published scientist in U.S. history. He published more than eighteen hundred articles, um, as well as two full-length books. And most of those articles are were about his paleontology research and comparative anatomy research. But then he also liked to extrapolate from, you know, the biological laws that he was, you know, you know, discovering slash inventing into the larger political sphere. So. Um, he, they were tremendously influential. Um, you know, they were all students of Agassiz, um, except for Cope's, actually. Um, and they, you know, sort of turned against their mentor in embracing evolution, um, but they thought that Darwinian evolution was was validating what they, what Cope called promiscuous variation, <laughs> and they wanted instead uh, a version of evolution that was orderly. You know, directed by reason and feeling. Um, and that was even more guaranteed to turn out as a teleological path to progress um, than Darwin was. And Darwin, as I said, was already being read in teleological ways at that moment anyway. Um, but they really wanted a notion of, of evolution that humans maintain control over species change. Um, and by humans here, I mean that in a race science sort of capital H way. Um, in other words, like those groups that had achieved civilization and were therefore understood to have acquired full humanity. So, you know, as Peter, as historian of science, Peter Bowler writes, that Cope's ideas were taken seriously by every every paleontologist of his era. Um, you know, he's most famous to us now for his really outrageous uh, Competition he had with O.C. Marsh, you know what we call the Bone Wars—about who could discover and classify uh, the most pre—the the most prehistoric species—and um, they did really, you know, they did really outrageous things, including like blowing up uh, each other's train cars full of specimens, <laughs> um, or or dynamiting fossil collection sites, um, buying up an entire print run of an article of a journal containing an opponent, the opponent's article, so that nobody could see it and therefore it wouldn't have an effect. (laughs) Um, And this tends to be the story we tell about Cope now. Um, But I but I wanted to tell a a different story about actually about how much his notion of an evolution that works by a mastery of sentiment and that therefore gives the civilized control over species change by virtue of their mastery of the reflection the re, uh, reflectional capacity of feeling to inter, to develop self-control and to to mediate upon the following, like you know, instinctive sensation and, and and impulsive feelings. That this kind of evolution by sentiment, I think, is actually tremendously uh, significant, and was embraced by by. A much wider popular sphere. I mean, you know, everyone from someone like a Harriet Beecher Stowe is also working with a kind of evolution by sentiment, although not with the same kind of scientific framing. You know, so, so, for example, after she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, she actually bought a Florida plantation with the specific goal of trying to train the formerly enslaved people into the habits of civilization, um, through teaching them the arts of Uh, You know, cleanliness, promptitude, (laughs) Christianity, you know, and proper maintenance of a home. It was kind of her own version of the off-reservation boarding school movement that tried similarly to civilize the uncivilized through training them in the habits and feelings and sensations of civilization. Cope was really outlining a specific um, evolutionary framework for this much broader hope. That humans could that, that that whites could wrest control of civilization um, and train themselves into perfection and train the uncivilized into positions of of servitude where they'd be beneficial to capital accumulation instead of posing threats to capital accumulation.
0: Absolutely. So in terms of how this idea around um, sentimentalism and around impressibility, uh in your in your second chapter you get a different interpretation right you you, you um so with engaging with uh, frances harper and her black feminist biopolitics um it seems that her res- sort of response i guess you could say is that um as a race you know speaking as a black woman that uh as a race that that uh, the black population could become uh, less impulsive, right um, uh, and so could you speak more on on like how she was framing this and and in terms of you know what influence she had?
1: yeah, so the main argument of the book is that biopolitics consolidated in the nineteenth century u s in this sentimental mode about this belief in um, restraining and training a immediate response to sensation and cultivating these emotional powers of reflection um, that were understood not just to have an effect on, you know, cultivating individual discipline, but actually because of the broader Lamarckian framework of the 19th century, this process of disciplining sensation was thought to actually achieve regulation of the population. So I'm understanding sentimentalism as this broad technology of regulating the population to a to ultimately achieve what many hoped would be the uh, arrival of a of a condition of of heaven heavenly perfection on earth. Even folks like Cope were looking toward um, the evolution of white in, into perfection. Um, so this and this framework um, consolidated this capacity of white. Perfection through a series of contrasts, um, which is you know precisely how how race works, um, and precisely the point of race's invention within a larger framework of biopower um, that you that it works by identifying elements of the population that are seen as threats to the survival of the whole. Um, and again, you know, survival in this context meaning meaning actual perfection. So blackness was was cast in the position of being the greatest contagion to the possibility of of the the success of the population as a whole. Um, and in, partic- in particular, you know, because of attitudes anti black attitudes that we're familiar with still today, you know, including the idea of a, of a more animal sexuality, you know, a, a total. Um, inability uh, for any kind of impulse control or you know delaying gratification toward toward future reward, um, such that blackness was considered to be ultimately a problem of time, a problem of being unable to absorb the effects of one's actions and therefore move through time. so the central concept I work with here is the idea of impressibility, um, which i which identify as the capacity to be affected over time. And it's one of those keywords I think, that's been hiding in plain sight. It's actually everywhere in the 19th century and even up to the present. But we haven't really excavated, as, excavated it as such. Um, but impressibility is this, this um, capacity of the body was understood to be unequally just distributed across the races. Um, and it was the physiological potential for progress, that capacity of being affected by a sensation, um, developing some kind of response to it. Um, and therefore having a modification as a result that would then get transmitted to children. So it's it's the Lamarckian frame, uh, framework um, applied uh, much more broadly to the idea of um, social progress as well. So this put Blackness, and especially Black women, in a really hard position because they're denied the basic basic access to time. I mean, I, th- I think that race is a spatio-temporal framework. Um, which locks blackness in a position of being being animated fossils, you know, um, made to move by others, but not able to absorb the effects of their own motion, mo- own motions for themselves. Um, so Francis Harper really sort of took the bull by its horns, I think, um, and engaged in directly with this framework and arguing that black, that um, the black male class was developing the capacity of impressibility, and was de- you know developing this ability to discipline sensation, not just for the good of you know an individual moral Christian lifespan, but also for the good of the growth of the race as a whole. And she she read a fair amount of heredity theory. She wrote a fair amount of. Um, of advice to mothers about this is how you cultivate the right kind of sensation and feeling in our children, so we can can continue to improve the race, um, which is super important because you know she was the best-selling black author of the 19th century. Um, she she sold 50,000 books in the first 15 years of her career. It's mostly fiction, um, but, but this was precisely a great way to mo- to model a, a kind of didactic approach where where she's teaching readers um, how, to, how to upwardly evolve their children through a right kind of Christian evolutionary motherhood. Um, but I also think that she does so in a really interesting way because at least in, in my initial field, which is 19th century American studies and American literature, she's often dismissed as being horribly sentimental, you know, as way too prudish. Um, you know, uh, horribly anti-sex and way, way too um, committed to a kind of hyper respectability politics. But I think that if we understand sentiment, not just to be about a politics of saccharine emotion, and not just even a feminine politics, which is what much of the feminist recovery of sentiment was about in the 90s, um, and not only in imperial politics, but actually one of the structures of biopolitics itself we can see how she's actually engaging directly in the discourse of biopolitics and doing what I call a kind of negotiated biopolitics of engaging exactly with the notion of impressibility and totally changing who counts as impressible, who counts as capable of progress um, in a way that she ends up actually also recovering the possibility of black erotic pleasure. She really drills down on the, the role of the sensation at the heart of the notion of evolution Um, in order to recover a kind of physical gratification as actually being central to the idea of progress. So I find her a super interesting figure, um, though I'm certainly not trying to recover her as therefore a a fully radical one. You know, because for her, the line is not blackness and whiteness. For her, the line is the black middle class is capable of progress and the black working class is not yet (laughs) because their capacity for self-control has not yet been reawakened um so it's it's absolutely a biopolitics frame but a position of biopolitics articulated from the role of being cast unto death
0: now in your third chapter um you deal with more the side of medicine here um with Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell and Dr. Mary Walker and one you know of the many interesting parts about uh, this chapter is um you know, some side into 19th century queer doctors. Um, and, and uh, the, the other aspect of course, is how uh, Blackwell and Walker use this framework of impressibility uh, when it comes to uh, the vagina. So I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate on, on how exactly did they did they frame this impressibility of, of the vagina and how, how is it racialized?
1: Yeah. This was this was easily my favorite, you know, discovery of in the research of this project. You know, it started out as a chapter about the queerness of many of the early women doctors. You know, Lillian Faderman and others have have suggested as many as 70% of the female physicians in the first 80 years since women first started getting medical degrees in the 1850s um, were unmarried and lived full time with female partners. And so I was really interested in the queer potentials of Lamarckism, you know, because this idea that evolution happens through impressions um, means that. Hereditary material doesn't just come from what was later called heterosexual parentage. It means that hereditary material is transmitted in milieus, in environments, in all kinds of social interactions and relations. You know, and this is precisely, of course, why the 19th century had an obsession with degeneration, you know, but right about how even how contact with the wrong people, with the wrong social classes, with the wrong neighborhoods um, would create effects that would actually de-evolve the civilized. Um, but it also means that there's a kind of queer inheritance. <laughs> it meant that, for example, being a female physician put you in a position of actual generation in relation to uh, to whiteness. Um, Elizabeth Blackwell, for example, said, we are not mothers in the lower physical sense, she said. We are mothers in a higher sense. We're actually giving birth to a stronger race as a whole. So they saw their work as directly impacting the hereditary material of whiteness. Um, so, so, you know, the, the eugenic implications of that are massive. Um, and I think an important thing to realize about a lot of these 19th century reform projects, that they're actually invested in literally breeding a better whiteness. Oh, and that that eugenics that eugenics built into liberal reform, I think, has not been fully realized because we've been so wedded to the idea that eugenics equals the Mendelian gene, and haven't yet been able to see what eugenics under other schemes of, of heredity look like. Um, but much like Francis Harper was able to turn the theory of impressibility around and find some negotiating room for for arguing for the potential of Black womanhood, so did doctors like Elizabeth Blackwell and Mary Walker turn Impressibility around and say, okay, if the capacity for nervous sensation and emotional response is actually the heart of the ontology of progress, then we can identify the physical structure, the anatomical part that is the apex of the capacity of impressibility and progress and that structure is the vagina uh, which really blew my mind when I found these materials you know I had I had no idea that 19th century women physicians in the 1860s and 70s were even writing about vaginas or rape um, or um, especially marital rape um, or Uh, dildos or any of the number of topics that especially Mary Walker engages in. But they use the framework of impressibility to say um, vagina is the most impressible structure of the human nervous system and specifically the white woman's vagina because only the civilized have acquired the capacity of impressibility over time. And they say because of this, it's posing a tremendous threat to the racial health of whiteness that white women have no control over their sexuality. That white women have no self determination in deciding um, when they have sex. And so they, they use impressibility and the impressibility of the vagina to argue for the need, the racial need for white women's sexual self determination. So again, much like Harper, it's an argument that on the one hand is kind of you know really exciting to see to see feminists in the in the 19th century. Um, arguing for um, white women's sexual feeling, and also um, arguing against rape. You know, Mary Walker went so far as to say that fifty percent of all children she estimated were born of rape. Um, she said that fathers should teach their daughters to crush met um, rapists' testicles with their hands <laughs> um, as you know a necessary element of defense. These things are exciting to encounter in an 1860s, 1870s feminist text, um, but it's all wrapped up in this broader goal of evolving whiteness into eugenic perfection.
0: And that uh, that continues uh, in the next chapter, where you're dealing then with another just remarkable story. I, again, I had no idea about about this, um, the, the Children's Aid Society by Charles Brace yeah um, it's
1: phenomenal right this project that transported 200,000 kids from the from east coast cities to the west Um, and I also had never heard of it until I started doing this research it's weirdly not even part of a a standard American studies narrative
0: yeah and it, it must just have shaped so much uh given how how many um you know were were moved around yeah um and, uh, and also use, used for labor. So, that was a big part of it, right? So, in, the, the framing of this is that with, in New York City, explicitly, there's this problem of uh, particularly crime rates and seeing the youth as, uh, you know, basically the criminals. Um, and the only way to really get them to not be these impulsive criminals um, is to put them in an environment, uh, you know, once again, kind of dealing here with, with the proto epigenetics um, that with, within this uh, you know, within this environment and through the labor that they do um, that they can gain some, some self-control. So in, in terms, in terms of that uh, you know, speaking of which the children, uh, later on, they, you know, you include some of their, some of their accounts, which, which are just wild. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, and, and in terms of this, could you say uh, more about Charles Brace and, you know, how he, he got this, uh, as you call it, bio-philanthropy started um, and, you know, in terms, in terms of the uh, connection to uh, impressibility?
1: yeah. So, you know, it, it's Brace was a really perfect figure for me because he literally sits at the intersection of the different fields of, that I'm arguing were so intertwined. Sentimentalism, reform, and science. Oh, And a lot of that is just for him in, in, in his biography. You know, he's cousin to Harriet Beecher Stowe and Catherine Beecher. So he's literally of the family that's now considered, you know, the the paragons of 19th century sentiment. Um, His cousin was, another cousin of his was married to Asa Gray, you know, the leading botanist in the U.S. 19th century, uh, which meant that Brace was the second or third person in the U.S. to read Origins of Species when it came out. Uh, Because when it came out in November of 1859, Darwin sent two copies to the U.S., one to Agassiz at Harvard and one to Asa Gray. And Brace went to Asa Gray's house for Christmas a few weeks later, and read it then, and it blew his mind. And he was actually the person who introduced Darwin, um, Darwinian thought to Thoreau and Emerson and the Transcendentalists, who were part of the um, the, the Boston scene in the in eighteen fifties and sixties. Um, so, um, and then he also founded what um, you know organization still running today, the Children's Aid Society which evolved into the largest orphanage in New York, um, but also he's considered the father of modern foster care. By developing this project he called the Emigration Plan, which took children out of tenements, especially when he started in New York, but then other copycat organizations did it with other cities, um, and sent them to, um, the the rhetoric was, send them to farm families in the rural West. Uh, where they could be impressed with a new set of characteristics. So in some ways it's quite similar to the off-reservation boarding school movement, you know, started by Richard Henry Pratt in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, that we're a lot more familiar with. But I wanted to tell the story of the orphan train one, because it's, it's stunning to me how little we know of it. If you're not a, a U.S. social historian, um, but then also because he just had this incredibly well-worked-out theory about why the orphan trains would work to transform criminal-prone immigrant children, as he saw them, into disciplined Americans. Um, and that was because of this interest in Darwin. You know, he claims to have read Origin of Species 13 times. Um, he was able to visit with Darwin in England um, on the, you know, on the, because of his connections with Asa Gray. He published an ethnology in the 1860s in the midst of the Civil War, arguing against polygenesis, um, as well as other article length um, arguments about how environment um, creates physical racial characteristics and how environmental change, therefore, transforms physical and emotional and mental racial characteristics. So he really believed that by taking kids out of the tenements, that he would change um, their gemules. He had a very Lamarckian reading of Darwin. Um, he would change their gemules and therefore create new hereditary material and transform these kids into Americans. Um, you know, again, it was two hundred thousand kids that were transported. Um, he, they were purposely put in positions of legal limbo. They weren't formally adopted, um, but they also were cut off from their families. And so there are stories of things like um, children while riding the trains west, we now call them the orphan trains, riding the trains west um, you know, would have a note card in their jacket pocket with their family's address on it. Um, and would wake up after a nap or after a night on the train one day and discover that that card had been taken out of their jacket, that one of the Children's Aid Society's agents had removed it um, because the organization went so far as to say that children couldn't contact their families without explicit permission from the society. (laughs) Um, They really were trying to create a complete break with any contact of their former worlds in order to impress new characteristics upon these kids. You know, in some ways it was considered it's considered an enlightened approach because many thought that, um, you know, in my terms, many, many thought that immigrant, Irish immigrant kids were not impressible, you know, could not, did not have the capacity to change. Um, Brace did. Brace is extending that capa- that capacity of vitality and plasticity to immigrants, um, which was not necessarily the norm, um, but only in childhood. And that was that was a not uncommon belief that impressibility was heightened in childhood, and that if a primitive group had no impressibility in adulthood, they might still have a little bit in childhood. Um, so on the basis of this. of this goal of actually transforming hereditary material, um, I argue that this project is not just the beginnings of foster care, but we should think of it as the beginnings of a first large scale eugenics project. Um, And that's because I'm, you know, taking, taking a history of science intervention and saying, if we understand Galton at his word, Galton frames eugenics as the science of manipulating heredity in order to improve the race. You know, he's writing this in the 1880s, 20 years before Mendel's pea plant experiments are rediscovered, and 22 years before the concept of the gene um, is even invented. Um, So there's no reason that we have to equate eugenics with genetics. But eugenics is about deliberately manipulating heredity um, on the large, on the populational level of race. Um, And that's what I see happening in the the orphan train project with tremendous effects. I mean, I think that actually part of one of the impacts of the orphan trains is that this is partly how the Irish were understood to have become white over the second half of the 19th century into the 20th, Um, because he worked, he worked predominantly with Irish immigrant children um, and explicitly it's a framework of transporting these immigrant kids to helping to replace indigenous populations in the West. So this project went on from 1854 until 1929. So, you know, just just a mind-boggling number of decades and number of children involved. Um, and it wasn't stopped until every state had passed legislation prohibiting the transport of indigent children across state lines. So, in other words, I argue that new forms of eugenics that now understood hereditary material to be in, immutable um, were, were replacing older forms of eugenics that understood hereditary material to be malleable to experience. And then the other part, this is also another chapter where I where the archival work I did was really um, interesting to me and helping to flesh out the story. Um, and you know, had you know, had a real emotional impact on me um, as I was doing this work, which is that the New York Foundling has a collection of notes that were found pinned to the clothing of infants that were surrendered on their doorstep, given up for adoption. Um, either you know, and that those babies would either be raised in New York in the orphanages or would go out on the New York Foundling's own baby trains that they started in the eighteen seventies. Um, But they're just these notes that parents or other guardians or sometimes, you know, police officials or other reform officials would leave um, noting the, sometimes the circumstances of the the child's birth, maybe noting a name, maybe not um, often expressing a lot of regret and pain about how they couldn't afford to keep the child Um, sometimes just incredibly brief. Like one note just says in a perfect quill script it says only oh cruel poverty with an exclamation point um and these notes i think are really important records left by families that were that were um you know victims slash survivors of biopolitics um records of folks who were subject to eugenic regimes um uh that had goals that were quite different from their own. They were looking for a way that their child could be, could be fed, um, and not starve. Um, and instead, it gets wrapped up in this project of cultivating whiteness um, at a nation-state level of the race.
0: In chapter five, we kind of go full come full circle here because uh, this chapter is primarily focused on W.E.B. Du Bois. And uh, basically, his engagement with evolutionary thought, um, and so in terms of his intervention, um, it's it's really quite unique and I think understudied. Um, so I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate a bit more on how exactly did W. B. Du Bois. Intervene in, in this in this transition, this sort of a transitional period into the early twentieth century, um, from this more um, you know Lamarckian evolution to um, the, you know the the commonly known um, eugenics projects.
1: Yeah. So it, it is a really interesting period of transition, early twentieth century, um, where I think that sentiment in general is getting stripped of its epistemological power. Uh, and it's understood to now sentiment is just about emotional feeling and not about a physical discourse of sensation. Also it's no longer seen as having a sentiment. is no longer seen as having a role in scientific knowledge, like production, like it was in the 19th century. Um, and along with this shift you get a stripping away of the possibility of feeling and experience and impressions um as having any long-lasting change you know um that this is this is a rise of mendelian genetics a rise of classical genetics in which hereditary material is understood to be not only innate but immutable and impermeable you know um and to con- often considered by people like, you know, Davenport, you know, famously a central figure in Anglo-American eugenics as being incapable of mixing. You know, the her- hereditary material is so discreet that even, you know, biraciality poses a, t- a tremendous uh, problem because the, uh, uh, distinct racial genes will not mix in his, in his framework. Um, and so Du Bois is writing in this context and seeing a consolidation of genetic determinism happening around him. Um, and he says that he sees that the age of Weissman, um, the age of Mendel, the age of Davenport um, is working to further lock black blackness into a position of um, an utter lack of potential um, that for Du Bois, he's quite explicit. Um, That an older Lamarckian framework gave reformers a lot of hope and potential because it meant that changes you make in the present generation won't just affect people currently alive. They will actually have effects generationally over time. And Du Bois really wanted to hold on to this idea Um, He didn't want to give way completely to the new genetic determinist paradigm. And so I look at a bunch of his writing on evolution and heredity um, and reform and argue that he uh, embraces a a notion of social heredity as this idea that uh, he sort of argues, okay, maybe the the physical material component of heredity doesn't change, but that we have a social heredity. Um, that we can accumulate and improve upon over time and that this will help um, cultivate uh, the races into a position of greater potential. Uh, But then he also turns to birth control, um, I think is as many others did as a new place of eugenic potential, right? So the part of the shift from Lamarckism to Mendelian Darwinism in terms of reform is a shift from It's a shift in eugenics. And that shift in eugenics is from fighting over who gets to raise the children, who gets to direct children's impressibility, to a new framework of who gets to be pregnant in the first place. If genetics is immutable, then who raises the child doesn't matter so much. What matters is who's allowed, whose fertility is permitted. And Du Bois was really prolific, actually, in writing about the need to curtail black fertility. And not just writing about it, I also look at the Planned Parenthood archives and his work with the Negro Project of Planned Parenthood in the 40s, which was an experiment in running birth control clinics in South Carolina and Tennessee for Black women, specifically with the goal of reducing the birth rate of the Black working class. And I think that Du Bois had both eugenic and anti-racist aims in that goal, In that goal. Planned Parenthood did as well, though I think that the anti-racist goals were much smaller for Planned Parenthood. If you look at the archives and notes and things, they're much more interested in reducing the Black birth birth rate full stop. Um, whereas for Du Bois, he really sees it as a possibility of material advance. But it's very top-down. It's very elite-led. Um, so it it feels much more like a kind of eugenic project than it does a project about Black women's sexual self-determination. It's not about Black women being able to direct their own fertility as much as it is about a populational level effort to reduce the Black birth rate and therefore allow the possibility of Black working class progress. So in the end, I argue that actually this framework of populational level racial thinking for Du Bois is part and parcel of what is the most celebrated and most reviled aspects of his work. Um, the most reviled being the eugenic, eugenic elements of his work, and the most celebrated being his turn toward a socially constructed notion of race. I argue that both of these things actually come out of the way that he adopted Lamarckism for the Mendelian era.
0: Um, and then the epilogue, you turn towards um, you know, the more uh, contemporary issues here um, regarding impressibility. Um, so what are your what are your thoughts on epigenetics and and how does that fit within um, this history that, that you're telling us?
1: Yeah, I think we're definitely seeing a return to something. Like a Lamarckism, you know. I mean, epigenetics and Lamarckism have distinct differences, but we've clearly reopened that idea that hereditary material can be affected over time. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm of two minds about it. You know, I think as somebody in feminist science studies, um, I find the work of people like Sarah Richardson very important and influential. And asking us to be really cautious about epigenetics uh, and how it's actually been working so far. Um, just to double down on um, on the I, on the to double down on the role of women's soul and ultimate responsibility for for reproduction. Um, it's become a way of disciplining women's uh, bodies further. You know, for example that that bulletin that the CDC put out a year ago saying that women shouldn't drink their entire period and during their entire fertile period, you know, from age 14 to 44 or whatever. Um, The epigenetics is working to actually extend the period of a a woman's lifetime of when they're considered um, to be actively, you know, reproducing right to be be actively like bestowing hereditary material upon um upon offspring um from just being the period of pregnancy but to being their entire lives um whereas we're not even epigenetics still isn't isn't looking much at say the role of men's lifestyle on sperm you know at any point in their life even like within the you know immediate 24-hour period of of fertilization, for example, so I think I think that I think that that those those cautions are really important, um, and the epigenetics um, that embrace the sort of plasticity of the gene opens up again all these possibilities for you know eugenic sociobiologies um, that we were immersed in the nineteenth century. Um, but I'm not only gloomy, and and that's because I think that you know one of the arguments of the book that is that ultimately one of biopower's most salient legacies is the very practice of delineating biology from culture um, that that fantasy that you can separate out um, physiological uh, processes from their larger environments um you know I think that it's very important that, Francis Galton also invented the phrase nature versus nurture, not only genetics. And these are part and parcel of the same notion. And so part of me is, is glad that epigenetics is reopening this possibility of rethinking you know, dynamic interactions between bodies and their environments, you know, much like we're embracing a, a, in critical theory across the social sciences and humanities as well. Um, I think that potentially opens up new avenues for social justice If we can better understand how economic disparity, for example, actually has physiological effect over time. I think that's actually necessary for feminist and anti-racist work. Um, But I don't think that those models are going to come from dominant epigenetic science. I think those models are going to come from interdisciplinary thinkers um, with a good, uh, solid framework in history of understanding how we can engage in this kind of biocultural thinking um, without just opening the door to eugenics again.
0: Well, Kyla, we've uh, taken up a lot of your time. Uh, so I'm just going to ask you one last question. What are you working on now?
1: Yeah, I'm working. I'm This year, I'm on a fellowship at the Stanford Humanities Center where I'm working on a next book um, project called Gender Studies After Gender, um, which really picks up on this epilogue. Um, and I'm trying to rethink the sex-gender distinction in light of the material turn. Um, especially to produce a book that I think we could, we could be able to teach uh, in our undergraduate classes in particular. Um, that that idea of, you know, the idea that sex is biology and gender is culture, it's been crumbling for decades. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I'm not sure we've really Im- replaced it with a useful framework um, for understanding then, well, what is the difference of sex and gender? And why are we still using this framework if we no longer think that biology and culture are distinct processes? Um, so I'm trying to, I'm arguing that we think about sex and gender, both as dynamic assemblages, but that differ at the level of scale. Sex is in a dynamic assemblage. A biology and culture at the level of the individual body and gender a dynamic assemblage at the level of of the group but it's still the very beginning stages so I'm not yet sure exactly what that's going to look like as I flesh it out
0: well it sounds fascinating thank you again for joining us thank you so once again I, you know I can't I can't recommend this book enough. Uh, Kyla Shuler's book, The Biopolitics of Feeling, Race, Sex, and Science in the 19th Century. Thanks again for joining us. Goodbye.